Hey guys, it's Kayla. It's Evan. And welcome to Podstetrics. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Podstetrics. Welcome. Today we're going to be talking about a new ploidy screening. Did I say that right? Yeah, that's yeah, good. Thanks. <laughs> Before we start, let's just start with a medical disclaimer. So this podcast does not constitute as medical advice. If you do have any queries or concerns, please see your healthcare provider. So before we start going through content, it's really important that we define a few key terms that we'll be using throughout this podcast first. So you guys can understand what we're talking about, but even uh, we needed to look these up again <laughs> before we before we went through this episode because we were like, whoa, these, yeah. yeah. We're, uh, They're really easy to get them time. confused, I think. Yeah. Very easy to yeah. get confused. I get confused quite easily. Um so the first thing that we're going to define for you guys is screening. So screening is defined as looking for a disease in someone that is asymptomatic or healthy. Um, and this can really only speak to risk. So once we've done our screening, we also do something called diagnostic testing. So to diagnose, well, it's used to diagnose or confirm the presence of a disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one is sensitivity. Evan, do you want to go through this one? Sure. So sensitivity is the ability of a test to correctly identify patients with a disease. So it's ruled to rule th- it's used to rule things out. <laughs> They're both a bit of a shambles yeah, today. <laughs> so if a test is highly sensitive and the person tests negative, then we can confidently say that the person does not have the disease. We also have something called specificity, and this is the ability of a test to correctly identify patients without the disease. So we rule we use this to rule things in. So if a test is highly specific and a person has tested positive, then we can confidently say that the person has the disease. Ideally, we want both. We both. We ideally we want a test that is both highly specific and sensitive. So Evan came up with a little example while we were talking about this. So his example is this: <laughs> if a car alarm was highly sensitive but had low specificity, then it would go off every time a loud car goes past. It would also go off every time a robber was trying to break into a car, but we wouldn't know when because of the constant noise because it's constantly going off. And this is what we know as a false positive. So ultimately sensitivity and specificity can give the clinicians confidence in what they are diagnosing or what they think is going on. Yeah, so now let's move on to aneuploidy screening and diagnosis. So I suppose the first thing to say is it's completely voluntary. So it depends entirely on the views of the family. Mm-hmm. So it's completely up to mum and dad or mum and mum or dad and dad if they want to do the screening or if they don't want to do the screening. Yeah. So it's important to note that every child has the possibility of having some sort of chromosomal defect. Chromosomal defect. Um, prenatal screening allows for early identification of this screening. And if, if, I, if it is identified, then family can be offered um, genetic counselling. And I, I know that there are a number of support groups as well. Um, so little group, so basically mums with um, babies that may have some sort of um, chromosomal def, uh, defect actually meet up and they talk about what's going on and how they're feeling. And um, it's, a, it's a really positive experience from, from what I've heard. Um, current screening only looks for the most common of chromosomal abnormalities, unfortunately. And the most commonly screened condition is something that we, we know of as um, Down syndrome, so trisomy 21. Yes. Yeah. Um, so Down syndrome constitutes, or yeah, it's uh, 52 of all major chromosomal conditions. Um, 52%. 52%. Also, uh, we have Edwards, which is trisomy 18, and Patel being trisomy 13. Yes. 
Um, so now we move into screening. So in the first trimester, we do something called combined first trimester screening. And this is done from 11 weeks to 13 plus six weeks. This is done using a blood test and the ultrasound. And here we're looking at things like maternal age, nuchal translucency, PAPA A levels, and beta HCG. And this gives us a risk profile. Now, another thing that we can do is something called cell-free DNA testing, or NIPT, or non-invasive prenatal testing. Yeah. And this can be performed... They they generally call it the NIP test. Yeah, the NIP test. And this can be performed, or or it's uh, known colloquially as Harmony, I think. Yeah. Harmony test, yeah. And this can be performed any time after 10 weeks. This is the most specific and sensitive test. So 99%. Um, And it's only a blood test, but it's really expensive. So it's not covered by Medicare in Australia. And it costs about 490 bucks um, to do it here. Um, You still need invasive testing if positive. Um, One of the main things that we should talk about here is that in some women, in 1% to 6% of cases, something called a no-call result may appear. And this means that just a report could not be generated, so the test would have to be done again. Um, So screening in the second trimester, so we have the maternal serum screening or NIPT offered between 15 to 20 weeks. 15 to 20 weeks and this is less sensitive and specific than it was than if it was performed at 10 yeah. weeks but the yeah? nipt is still 99 it's so still it's only 99. the other one yeah yeah um so other markers which can and then we use other markers as well which can be used to determine the risk of aneuploidy but these are a little bit more complicated mm-hmm. um so following screening if there is a high risk then we turn to things like diagnostic testing however these diagnostic tests are quite invasive so there's two main diagnostic tests that we use, and the first one is called amniocentesis, and the second one being chorionic villus sampling. Mm-hmm. So the amnio- amniocentesis is performed after f- between 15 to 20 weeks, and this involves taking amniotic fluid via an ultrasound-guided needle. So it's a needle through mum's tummy all the way to the amniotic fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, and then basically the amniotic fluid that we take can be tested for a number of various things, including genetic testing, as well as things like fetal lung testing and the diagnosis of fetal infection. Um, It can also be used, uh, the technique in itself can also be used to drain excess fluid during pregnancy, a condition known as polyhydramnios, which is something that we've spoken about in a previous episode. Like any medical procedure, there are associated risks. Some of these include, um, which are quite rare, I must say, um, an amniotic fluid uh, leak, uh, miscarriage in itself so there's already a high risk of miscarriage in pregnancy and this just slightly increases that risk as well uh, we have a needle injury to baby and then uh, infection because we are placing something from the outside world into a sterile cavity so it's mm-hmm. like yeah um, the next one is a chorionic villa sampling and the chorionic villa sampling occurs uh, between 11 to 13 weeks and it's basically a procedure that involves taking cells from the chorionic villus and testing these for abnormalities. Um, So it can be performed before an amniocentesis and it can be performed one of two ways. The first way is transabdominal. So basically a needle is inserted through the abdomen similar to that um, as amniocentesis um, by ultrasound guidance. The needle, however, does not enter the amniotic sac and it is performed under local anesthetic. The second way is transcervical. And this involves a tube being inserted into the cervix. And again, this is uh, all done by observation by an ultrasound. The risks for CVS are similar to that of the amniocentesis, so we have miscarriage. We also have things like vaginal bleeding and infection. Um, however, it should be noted that the amount of tissue that is removed is small, so it shouldn't affect your placental function. Yeah, and I think from memory as well, the risk of miscarriage is slightly higher 
in chorionic villus sampling. Than it is in the amniote. Yeah. Yeah. So now, what happens after we obtain the cell? So generally, there's one of two things that we do. The first is carrier typing. So this is when we get the actual chromosomes lined up um, from a cell. Um, and then we look at them through the microscope. And here, we're looking for any defects in the chromosome. Yeah. Um, there's another procedure called FISH. Uh, and FISH stands for fluorescent in situ hybridization, which basically means that we take these fluorescent molecules, we attach them to certain parts of the chromosome, and they glow different colors. And this is really useful when we're looking at things like microdeletion syndromes, which is like an example of this is de George syndrome. These do take some time. I think it's anywhere between two to four weeks to come yeah, back. Actually, so it does yeah. take, yeah, some time. Yeah. Now, another thing that we can do apart from... Um, the screening and the diagnostic testing is something called carrier screening and this is really useful for genetic conditions which run in families so things like cystic fibrosis or thalassemia which could easily be passed on to offspring so this is something else that we can do yeah brilliant so that brings us to the end of our episode so again like every week you can follow us on our instagram or any of our social media being instagram twitter facebook um listen to our episodes on streaming platforms spotify apple podcasts and Castbox. Mm -hmm. Or you can just look at Podcentrics on Google and all of that should, cut up, should come up for you. Yeah, yeah, and as always as well, please do like um, and leave a comment on our um, Apple podcast because it helps people find us. Yeah. So as always, I'm Kayla. I'm Evan. Stay safe, guys. And take care of yourselves. Bye.